I want to read to you, beginning with uh, the ninth verse, which is where we ended last week, Romans 3. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being may be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, now we would ask that you would help us even as we prepare to, um, to take this supper together. We would ask that you would use your word to draw in our wandering hearts and thoughts. Would you illumine our minds to be able to understand what your word is saying and why you have said this? Would you teach us, but more than that, would you move us? And we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, here we see the Apostle Paul continuing to answer the question uh, of why did Jesus have to go to the cross? What's the big deal? You know, what was that? Was that forced? What was the reason? Uh, you know, from a theological perspective, what meaning did that have? And This is uh, kind of winding down that first section of Romans where he is dealing with that, where he's already stated that if we are to have any righteousness, it's got to be righteousness that comes from outside of ourselves. And he has said that a number of different ways, and he's about to say it again, and he's going to get real practical here to uh, talk about what this means if, if, we, if we sin, if we all sin, what does that really mean for us? So as we, as we jump in here, and by the way, I know that's a, when you just take a small section of Scripture, that's a, 
That's a rather depressing little section of Scripture, isn't it? I mean, you kind of want at the end of that to, uh, to hear him give the gospel. Well, be encouraged because we are going to get there. When we take small sections like that, we always wind up there, and that's going to be the beauty of this table. And I think in some ways that whole sense of the heaviness of our sin, I, I think you're going to see relief today when we get there. So look at uh, what he says in verse 9 and 10. He's basically saying everyone is under sin. Uh, what then are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. So he begins by asserting that uh, if any of you are feeling smug at this point, don't. Because you're included in this. He's not giving an exemption to anyone for any reason at this point. Certainly not because I'm a Jew or even because I'm a Greek and, and now I hear this good news. And he's about to show them that uh, this is not something new. In fact, this has been the account from the very beginning of the Scripture itself. And as he goes through, and these are all these are quotes from uh, the Old Testament from various places. Um, and it's all the way from Genesis. And this is the result of the fall of man. Now, in theology, we call this total depravity. Maybe you've heard that, that term. Uh, so before we go farther, um, let's clarify just a, at least a, a few things about total depravity. Uh, because of the very nature of that word, We've got, to, we've got to declare what it is not. Total depravity uh, is not saying that we are as bad as we could be. Okay? So when you, you think of yourself, you, you know, you're, you're still not exempt from being totally prave, depraved, even if there are others you can think of that are worse than you. That's not what total depravity actually means. It, it, uh, it does not mean that everyone is equally evil. So think of the most evil uh, person in history or the one that we think of as, as evil, whether it's an Adolf Hitler, Saddam Hussein, somebody like that. And we would say, you know what? That's true. We're not all Adolf Hitlers. We're nowhere close to, to that. You don't have to go all the way that far to say that we're not all equally evil. There's a Russian uh, poet, Turgenev, that uh, said this, I don't know what the heart of a bad man is like, but I do know what the heart of a good man is like, and it is terrible. 
I think he nailed it right there. So if, if it doesn't mean we're as bad as we, we could be, then what is total depravity? Well, total depravity from a theological perspective is saying that every part of our being is affected by the fall, by the fact that there is sin in this world. Every part of our being, inside and out, is affected by that. And then total depravity, because of that, means that we are rendered totally unable to save ourselves. That's how I want you to remember uh, total depravity. In fact, when I teach Theology 101 or any time I teach about total depravity, uh, you know, I'll, I'll say, I, I want you to use this term instead of total depravity, which sounds like you're saying that you're as bad as you could be. Write in the word total inability. And that will remind you that I'm totally unable to save myself. That's the nature of total depravity. And that's, that's really what he's talking about here. Uh, now, I, I said that if it affects every aspect of our being, and he's, he's about to prove that. Uh, we, it, it affects our mental aspects. Look at verse 11. He says, no one understands. Now, that's not a plea of ignorance. It's showing the result of a hard heart. In, in chapter 1, Paul talked about that downward spiral of uh, when man goes his own way and the kinds of things that take place and the choices that he makes and how it, it gets worse and it gets worse and worse. And then he talks about the suppression of the truth how mankind has suppressed the truth that we have. And that's what he's talking about here when it says no one understands. He's saying that, that uh, mankind has been given truth and he chooses instead to suppress that truth which takes away his understanding of God. And then he says, no one seeks for God. The word there, uh, seeks, in the original language, means a, a determined search to seek out. Now, here's the point. Sometimes we will talk about somebody who uh, is uh, in the position before they know Christ. Every Sunday... We have people here who don't yet know Christ, and we're glad you're here. Um, this is, you know, it, it, it's here or another church where the gospel is that, that you have the opportunity to know more of Christ. But there was kind of a, a popular thing where people would, would call those that don't know Christ yet seekers. Paul would say, no. no. Nobody seeks God. In fact, if there is an openness and somebody who is trying to know more of Christ, there's only one reason, and that is because the, the Spirit of God is working in their heart. 
Because left to themselves, the Word of God tells us no one seeks. In fact, you go back to the Gospel of John, and Jesus says, man hates the light. Not only does he not seek the light, but he, he hates it. Paul talks about us being dead. And, and that's, that's why we don't seek. Because those that are dead don't seek anything. And he says that's what comes. And uh, Jesus said this in John 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Those are the only ones seeking when they're being drawn by the Father. And then he talks about actions. And I, let, let me say this. All of these overlap. For the sake of my outline here and going through this passage, I'm breaking them down into categories, but they all, they all overlap. It's not as neat as I'm making in here or as my outline did. But verse 12, he says, all have turned aside. Now that sounds like Isaiah 53 that we will read at the table today. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to our own way. So rather than seeking God, man turns away from God. And then verse 12, together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now, <clears throat> typically when we make that statement that if you're outside of Christ, you can't do good. That's usually challenged because uh, people will say, and, and I understand this, now wait a minute, I know people who don't know Christ that do a lot of good things. I, I know people that don't know Christ that are patient or they're kind or they love their spouses and are faithful to their spouses and love their children and grandchildren. You know, you can go on and on and say, and, and they don't know Christ. How can you say, how can the Bible say that no one does good? Well, there is that sense that there are these, these good things that can take place outside of a saving faith. Now, going back to theology we would say that's a part of God's common grace that he pours out on all mankind to, to make this place where we're living tolerable. So there are good things that the believer and the unbeliever both can enjoy. And that's because of his common grace. But there's a difference between that common grace and saving grace. And this is talking about saving grace. So yes, unbelievers can do generally good things. What Paul is talking about is that, that mankind cannot do things that will save them. In fact, unless those things, those good things are done for the glory of God, they steal His glory and so become worthless in terms of eternity. And that's what, why Paul is quoting this here. And then he goes on and talks about speech. Um, 
you know, every one of these could easily be a whole sermon or almost a series. Uh, Verse 13 and 14, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. I don't know about you, but do any of these sound familiar in our world? They do to me. What we need to know about this, though, is that, look, these are just symptoms of a heart that is lost. These aren't the biggest problem. So when you hear people that, that curse or curse God, when you hear people that deceive time and time again, don't get mad at that. Cause that to, to, in your mind, say, that person needs Christ. That person needs a new heart because those things coming out of their mouths are just reflecting what's inside of them. And we can so quickly get mad and impatient at people who don't know Christ where we ought to use that as a prompt to pray for them. That person needs the Lord. And then he talks about human relationships. Verse 15, they're Their feet are swift to shed blood in their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There's our world again. You know, this last Friday, I, I just thought to myself as I heard news about more shootings. I thought how how tired I am of hearing that. Do you know what I mean? How weary I am of hearing these again and again. But that weariness should not be aimed at at the people here. It's a weariness from living in a fallen world. A, A world that is not yet what it will be. And so, we should be weary of those things. But also take note, because when when others try to address these kinds of things in, in the world, and they're trying to address them without Christ, every solution will fall short. It'll just be a little band-aid. And that's why those that are sincerely trying to find solutions are so frustrated because the solution is in the gospel. It's in Christ. And then he goes on after talking about human relationships and talks about the relation, our relationship with God. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This should almost be understood, but he, he says it. Paul's spoken of all these outward manifestations, and, and now he makes it clear that they, they don't have a right relationship with God, much less worship God. And that's just another sign of how we are all, all sinners. Now, 
he gives what I'm calling for this section an application of, he, he, he goes from these Old Testament quotes that are like a string of jewels, kind of, and then he talks about the law and, and kind of makes an application in terms of the, we, we in theology talk about the uses of the law. Here's what he says. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So here he speaks again to the Gentile that might say, well, maybe if I can obey this Jewish law, I'll be okay. Or to the Jew that says, all i got to do is keep the law better. And he says to both of those groups, no. No, that, that's not the case. In fact, that's not even the purpose of the law. In theology, we talk about the, the three uses of the law, um, the first use being the law being a teacher in a mirror. We, the technical term is pedagogical. In other words, having to do with a teacher. It's a teacher for us. It's a mirror for us that reflects the perfection of God, and it reflects our own imperfection. Now, I, I'm I'm only going to speak for myself because I don't know what goes on with you in the morning when you wake up and go in the bathroom and flip on the light. But when I, when I get up in the morning and I, I go in and turn on the light, I don't know, even know why we bought this house. It's got this huge mirror in our bathroom. And I turn on the light and it's like, oh, man. <laughs> I got to do something before I leave this house today. Got all the lights above me and the mirror. But the reality is I'm just seeing myself. I'm seeing, I'm seeing my flaws. And that's basically what the mirror does for you. That's what the law does. The second use of the law, and we're not going to talk about the second or third use because this passage is really talking about the first use, but just so you know, the second use of the law is the civil use to restrain evil. Basically, our laws are, are focused, uh, uh, you know, they're, they're similar to the Ten Commandments, only expanded. And then the third is didactic, to reveal what's pleasing to God. In other words, for we who are believers, we have the law of God that says, you know what, this is a better way to live. This is a good way for you to live. You will be happier and, and more prosperous and enjoy your life more if you live according to this law. But let's go back to the first use because that's what he's talking about here as a teacher and mirror. There's several things that, that the law can do for us. The first thing it will do is it will drive you to despair. I'm hopeless. 
and life has no meaning if I need to keep this law and I, I cannot keep it. Not just that I can't keep it perfectly. I, I, I violate it every day. And if we think that our whole goal is to keep that law, we will die in despair. Sometimes we tend to compare ourselves to other people in order to feel fine about ourselves. In, <clears throat> before my mother went to be with the Lord, in her last year, she was in a nursing home. And when I would go to visit her, I, I, would, I, I felt like a child in there. I had a spring in my step. Because when I would compare myself to her and the people in her hallway and those I was walking by, it was like, I got no problems here. I'm in great shape. Now, that's the one end if you compare, you know, try to find somebody to compare on that end. And the other end is what I've been doing uh, this month is watching the Olympic trials. Yeah, you already know. So I'm sitting there seeing these incredible athletes that are in uh, amazing shape and able to do things that I, I can't even dream about. And I feel like I need a snack, you know. And, <laughs> and so I groan and stand up and my knees pop, you know. And it's like... Man, this is kind of depressing. Well, that's what the law can do for us. Not that those athletes are perfect. But it shows how far away from who we ought to be. And the law does that for us. And if we stop there, we will just, we will get depressed and we'll go to despair. Or the law can drive us into denial. One form of denial is thinking you can be good enough to make up uh, for not keeping the law. In other words, working your way to heaven. Thinking you can work your way to heaven. <coughs> it's denial because it is severely underestimating how lost we are and how hopeless our plight is. If we think, if I could just do more good things than bad things, the law won't permit that. And so we either have to face up to the law or, or go into denial. But the third thing the law will do is to drive us to Christ. And that's the good thing in all of this. And that's the relief of the table the Lord's table represents the law fulfilled in Christ. That he, he did keep the law and he kept it perfectly. So in, in a sense we can say if I'm trusting in Christ alone, I am saved by works, by the works of Christ. Never by my own, but by the work of Christ that was so perfect. And then when we receive him, 
as our Savior, when we trust in Him alone and not our own works, then His righteousness is imputed to us. And so we can come to this table not cowering, not begging, but we come to the table if we're trusting in Christ alone as children of the living God who are invited to eat with Him. And that's, that's the relief of coming here. That whatever else is going on in our life, if we're trusting in Christ alone, we have peace with God. Augustine said it this way. The law bids us, as we try to fulfill its requirements and become wearied in our weakness under it, to know how to ask the help of grace. The law bids us to know how to ask for the help of grace. And so as we come to the table, we come with a desire to celebrate our union with Christ. This is what, this is what the apostle said. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So the invitation is for those who are trusting in Christ alone for their eternal life. And those who have publicly professed that faith. So if you have children that haven't done that yet, use this time to teach them, but withhold it from them. And, and if you're one of those who, as I said earlier, I'm glad you're here if you don't yet know Christ, just let the elements pass by. We're not, we're not going to point you out. We're not looking around to see who's taking and who isn't. But... But God gives this, this, this gracious warning to those that don't know Christ not to make a mockery of this table by pretending like you belong there. And so wait and watch and listen and hear the beauty of the gospel that's represented in this table as it speaks of that great and perfect sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ who gave his body and his blood to pay for the sins of his people. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the relief of this table.
Help us now as even in, in this song to continue to prepare our hearts and to discern our involvement in this supper. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.